Bloody, beaten, and trapped on the raft, town folk recalled watching the sisters struggling and wailing helplessly when, without warning, all three sisters suddenly froze, their bodies becoming unnaturally stiff. Minutes passed, and those on the shore wondered if rigor mortis was setting in, the sisters having died from the shock of the ordeal. But then a most unnerving, quite frightening thing happened. The sisters, moving as if they were one, slowly lifted their heads in unison and glared intently at the vigilantes and gawking townfolk, their eyes unnaturally wide and full of hate. Then suddenly, as if possessed, their bodies started shaking with rage and the sisters, raving maniacally, spewed curses and obscenities at the witnesses on the shore, damning them all and their descendants. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. A podcast where two historians dive into legends of murders, ghosts, cryptids, and more in the Great Lakes region. Today, the Witch's Castle of Utica, Indiana. Sam, had you heard of the Witch's Castle of Utica, Indiana before I said anything about it to you? No, but didn't I find it? I I think I sent it to you, though. Did you? Yeah, it was on oh, some like w- it was like a website post or something of like spooky places or I can't even remember exactly what it was, haunted ruins or something. And I said, "Oh, this could be good oh, for the podcast." You're right. You're right. You're right. Yes. <laughs> this is why we need to keep better records about our research. <laughs> I mean, so- it does not matter, but I had not heard of it before um, before I saw it and then you ran with it. So it was yeah, great. <laughs> because I hadn't heard of it either. And I should have, because once you told me about this, I went through this weird web rabbit hole and realized that all of this happened in an area right near where I went to college and was connected to a brutal murder I remember hearing about because it was on nationwide news back when I was in high school. And then I happened across a series of local legends related to the location that were utterly outlandish. And then there's this little dash of weird bad pseudo history that comes out of left field and it was all this big sort of stew of strangeness so obviously since she had initiated this in the first place by sending me this link i inflicted all of this upon sam (laughs) and said you were correct this is right up our alley Yes, inundated, I think. Inundated. Inundated. And inflicting sounds a little too, uh, it sounds like you had malicious intent, but. (laughs) Yeah, let's get started. All right. So to set the stage, we're going to do a little bit of geography and history of the Utica area. It is situated in the Louisville, Kentucky. Sorry, I got to say that again because I lived in Kentucky. It is situated (laughs) in the Louisville, Kentucky metro area on the Indiana side of the Ohio River. So it was the first white settlement in the area. And this was in 1795. And the town itself was laid out and established about 10 years later. So, of course, as things were back then, it was just a little settlement of some some you know folks who um, who got to the area and then they they made a town. That's how things worked back then. <laughs> um, and within a couple of years, settlers from Philadelphia arrived to increase the population, and the town began to grow. It served as a convenient ferry point between Indiana and Kentucky. One of the prominent settlers in the area was James Noble Wood, and he had a reputation for being quite the adventurer. He he was a good hunter. He made several trips to New Orleans because you can follow the Ohio River to the Mississippi and then take the Mississippi River right down to New Orleans. That was quite a feat at the time, not something everybody did. It would have been a very long and arduous trip. Um, and he was an important figure in negotiating treaties with the native tribes who lived in the area. And he also mixed with some pretty famous political figures. In 1805, he met Aaron Burr at Jefferson and um, quote with him was much pleased so <laughs> if you uh, if you are a Hamilton fan you'll know who Aaron Burr was and if you're not he's the guy who killed Alexander Hamilton <laughs> and then he also tried to uh, sort of stage a coup and um, you know start his own country so <laughs> interesting character yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> this is not my my colonial history, revolution history podcast, so I'll continue. Um, during Wood's life in Utica, there were some small-scale disputes with the native groups in the tribe. Obviously, white folks show up on your land. <laughs> Things are not necessarily going to, to go the best. Um, then much, much later, if we skip ahead to the 20th century, in the 1940s, a gentleman named J. Paul Druin bought some property called Mistletoe Falls in Utica. It was right on the river. Um, he began building an impressive stone home at the site. This house included also a chapel that was built as well. And it was designed to look like a tugboat sitting in stone waves, according to a local newspaper story. Now, I would really like to see <laughs> what that looks like in stone. Oh, my gosh. I mean. It, 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 I mean, it's a perfect motif for being on the river yeah. with all the barges that go down yeah. the Ohio. Uh, it, it, it would be absolutely cool. But uh, unfortunately, <laughs> we can no longer see that. No. Uh, Druin ended up selling the property to a man named Joseph Biagi, whose stepson set the house and the chapel on fire, heavily damaging it. And after that, it was uninhabitable. So that's sort of your history of Utica and this this the, the place place, the ruins place that that we'll be focusing on for this story. We will talk about how much veracity these sources have mm -hmm. as we go along, but there are persistent urban legends of a curse. Now, the question is, is the curse on the property, the Mistletoe Falls property in Utica, or is the curse on the entire town? There are numerous stories. So the earliest involves three Métis sisters who were connected to the white settlement in the area. Now, this word Métis, M-E-T-I with an accent over it, S. Sam, you're an early Americanist. What does that mean? It's an individual who is of Native American and French parentage. So um, the, the mixing of the two. Yes. So we've got these three sisters who are, who are in this case, French and Shawnee. And the story goes that James Noble Wood, one of the earliest settlers, swindled these three sisters out of their land. And according to one source, quote, Wood claimed the land in compensation for his military service and evicted the sisters who were then forced out by a vigilante mob, beaten and sent on a raft down the river towards the falls of the Ohio, which is really more like the whitewater rapids of the Ohio, but it's still, it's not like a waterfall. It's more of just a rough area in the Ohio. This would kill them. And as they floated away, as we heard in the, the opening statement there, they glared at the town folk and shouted curses upon them. And these curses have plagued the town forever. And it's why Utica never grew to be as big and prominent and amazing as Louisville, even though Louisville had kind of a head start and <laughs> you know a little more going for it geographically. So that's uh, one story. Heard, oh, oh, I was going to say one of the stories that I read said that the townspeople watched them for an hour as they floated down river. I don't know how you could watch anything for an hour <laughs> on a river. Like <laughs> no, no. And, I mean, and we'll we'll be dissecting all of this later. But I just wanted to to throw that one out there early. Among yes. the many improbable aspects of yes. some of these claims are yes. the townspeople watching these these sisters float for uh, float for an hour. Yeah. Another aspect of this story says that these three sisters were the daughters of a. Um, a, a trader who was Métis himself named Charles Toulet and his Shawnee wife. And Toulet was a, a, a trader at a place called Toulet Town, named after him. Later, the people who moved in would rename it Springville. This version of the story goes that his daughters lived at the site of Mistletoe Falls, the witch's castle, and they were burnt out and driven from their home because they were Shawnee. And the place is said to be haunted by them because they were driven out in this fire. So in, in your mind, file this one away as three Native American sisters done wrong by the townsfolk. Okay, so that's sort of this story. And also a haunting and a curse are two very different things. <laughs> 
So they are. They are. So keep that in so mind there, too. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a curse. There's a haunting. Um, you can have both. You can have you one or the other. Um, but they're not the same. Nope. Yeah. So later, sometime after 1830, there's another story that another family of three sisters, what are the odds, moved into a, this is what the story says, a curious castle-like stone shack. Sam, have you ever seen a stone <laughs> shack no, and I've never seen a shack that's castle-like either. Like, no, a, a it's castle-like a lot of adjectives stones. that don't make sense together. Right. It, it, it's there's there's some real architectural and <laughs> material and construction mixing up going on here. So three sisters move into the castle-like stone shack. And the people in the town didn't like these sisters. They thought they were rude, thought they were unfriendly. They uh, they didn't go out during the day, but at night they foraged in the woods. And according to, to one account, these women um, put baskets of, quote, odd roots, geodes, and animal bones, end quote, on their front porch. And another quote, repugnant smells issued from the chimney. Now, these sisters had no trespassing signs up and supposedly fired warning shots at people who got too close to the property. The rumor in the town was that these women were witches, but they didn't seem harmful. You know, live and let live. So you got a basket full of geodes and bones on your porch and your chimney stinks and you're shooting at people from your porch. Live and let live, people thought, until kids started disappearing and and one month five children disappeared and this is from an account we found quote suspicion soon fell on the witches and a raid of their house unveiled a grisly scene what appeared to be human skins were hanging on a makeshift clothesline across the back of the main room tossed in the corners were piles of small human bones and stewing in the pot over the fireplace was what appeared to be a child's heart Tried on the spot, the three sisters were found guilty of cannibalism and witchcraft, hung until dead, and their house burned to the ground. There's little to no evidence to support these tales that have any actual contemporary source. And that's the thing. By the post-1830 period, Indiana had been a state since 1816. You know, we would be at least 15 years into statehood in the part of the state that was settled and politically organized the earliest. There were judges in here. James Noble mm-hmm. Wood was the first magistrate in that part of Indiana. There was a court system. There were newspapers. There was there were much bigger newspapers in Louisville across the river. There would have been, and I didn't find any, some newspaper report somewhere of Three sisters eating little kids in a castle-like shack. But there's nothing. There's no record. And as we'll see, these different witchcraft stories will tend to get confused. But there's another story that we have a lot of documentation on. And that happened in the 1990s. Yeah. So in January of 1992, a 12-year-old girl named Shonda Scherer was murdered. Uh, Scherer was born in Kentucky in 1979. She moved several times during her life after her parents divorced, then her mother remarried and divorced again. But eventually she ended up attending Our Lady of Perpetual Help, a Catholic school in New Albany, Indiana. I just want to say, like, going to a school named something like Our Lady of Perpetual Help seems... Just perfect. I don't know. Not perfect for the story, but it's just like, wait, that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Know. Oh. Oh. Gosh. I. I am a. I am a huge mark for for Catholic school and church names. Yeah. So as we look at the story of of how this murder transpires, there's a lot of she said kind of teen girl gossip. Um, someone stole someone's romantic partner, their girlfriend. Someone else is is upset about that. There's there's a lot of that going on, and I'm going to spare you the details of all of that. Um, but if you look at the Wikipedia page, you can see a very detailed um, play by play on how all of that transpired. But eventually, Sharer ends up dating Melinda Lovelace's ex girlfriend Amanda Heverin. So. 
Melinda Lovelace and Amanda Heverin were dating. Heverin leaves Lovelace or they break up. And then I don't know who left who, I guess I shouldn't say that, but they break up. And then Heverin ends up with Cher. Lovelace is not happy about this. And getting back at Sharer, who was several years younger than Loveless, um, uh, comes comes to her mind. So Loveless gathers three fat friends. They are all aged 15 to 17, and they plan to intimidate the 12-year-old Sharer. One of the girls told Sharer that Heverin was waiting to meet her at the, quote, witch's castle. This is the term that's used. And after they got Sharer into the car, they held a knife to her throat and questioned her about her relationship with Heverin. Once they were at the castle, they pulled her out of the car, tied her up, and sort of a, a slew of sort of mental torture uh, ensued at this point. Nothing truly physical, no physical harm had come to her at this point yet, but a lot of yelling, screaming, threatening, lighting a shirt on fire, you know, um, a lot of these kinds of things. They decide to throw her back in the car. They continue driving around. And throughout the night, an entire night, they stop several different times. They physically torture Sharer, punching her, stabbing her, doing other things to her that we're not going to go into here. And eventually they end up putting her in the trunk of the car. They made a stop to get pops, to use the bathroom. Like they're just driving around southern Indiana with this poor girl in their trunk. Um, eventually they stop in Madison, Indiana. Um, she's still alive at this point. They douse her in gasoline and set her on fire. And that is the end of Shonda Sharer. The girls then went on to McDonald's to have breakfast. So yeah, clearly affected by what had happened. My gosh. And I went to college in, um, near Madison, Indiana. So th- this was like that's that's where our Walmart was when I was in college was 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 Madison. That's where all the stuff was. Mm-hmm. And um so this had happened when I was in high school a few years before I went to college and I remember hearing about it on the news and it didn't really sink in when I was at college like oh my gosh, that's where this happened. And they they burned her near uh Jefferson Proving Ground, which was mm-hmm. a place where the army was you know, always testing ordnance. So it's a place where if you wanted to burn something, people were used to strange fumes and maybe seeing smoke mm. and uh, and and things like things like that. Eventually, two of the girls ended up confessing. Then they pulled not not loveless, <laughs> um, but two of the other girls ended up confessing. And then they, of course, get the other two girls in. They're all sentenced to various lengths in prison it's not really even contested trials and and it comes out that all of the girls involved had histories of physical sexual and mental abuse in their homes they came from broken homes they'd all moved quite a bit so none of them had had safe stable upbringings and so it's a a horribly unfortunate tale on on all accounts um that you know these girls had you know, their first 15 to 17 years were, I mean, a few of these girls, especially Loveless, I think hers was some of the most extensive. She had a hellish childhood. So one of the girls who was involved in the murder was named Lori Tackett, and she was rumored to have been dabbling in the occult. She came from a very religious family, and one website noted that she was trying to rebel against this because she often couldn't do normal teenage things, and so she sort of fell into this. One book that Aaron's going to be talking about more later was called Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones, and she really brings out this occult interest that Tackett had. She mentions that she used to be, pretend to be the ghost of a vampire, but also she notes a lot about um, Tackett's mental situation, her mental health. She had begun to engage in self-harm. She once, you know, even cut herself so deeply that she had to be hospitalized and she was institutionalized for a while. So not, not a stable teenager at all. So the details of the story and Tackett's reputation a crime by four girls, the nature of the murder, it all led to cries of occult and satanic involvement. The owners of the property that included the witch's castle at that time, Darlene and Neil Roach, had to deal with slews of trespassers, even trespassing news crews who were all trying to either play up the supernatural elements, hunt for ghosts, you know, perform seances. You know, they were all convinced that there was some kind of supernatural boogie that was happening um, at at the stone ruin. 
They noted that prior to the murder, though, they caught a few random picnickers. So prior to the Sharer incident, they weren't finding a bunch of people having, you know, sacrifices and seances and things out there. But after this, things changed and news crews trumped up the power of the place. Neil himself noted that if the place had the, quote, power that had been ascribed to it, the girls never would have left here. So just to show the amount of exaggeration that went into um, sort of creating, you know, the story around this place. And so this all really fits into the traditional satanic panic narrative that kicked off in the 1980s and continued into um, the 90s. So pop culture, psychology that has since been disproved, the evolution of role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, all of this led to claims of secret satanic societies, repressed memories from our unwilling participants, and claims of sacrifices by different cults. So in the decade leading up to this, you had so many of these stories that were coming out and being emphasized by news stations, by newspapers, you know, by by everybody, that this sort of just fell in line as, oh, here's another one of these satanic murder stories um, that, that needs to be investigated. And um, by the end of the next year, the Roaches listed the property for sale because they didn't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah, and the the satanic panic stuff. I I don't know how much you remember, Sam. From I was the born time in eighty seven, pro- so I don't so, remember any of it. Right. So you you. Oh, I, I've read about it. Okay, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to sort of sort of out your age. You know, ah. So I, I allowed you to do that. I uh, I I was. Gosh, when this was hitting its height, I was right at the right sort of pre-adolescent age to at first be terrified by it when mm. I'd see things about it and then find it kind of cool and then find it kind of silly. So I went through the whole sort of life cycle. <laughs> I grew up with the satanic panic. I grew up with the, the you know, Dungeons and Dragons and some kids, you know, their parents wouldn't let them play it. Uh, but I remember uh, Geraldo Rivera's primetime special about satanic cults. I, I, I watched that until they had some really lurid stuff. My mom was like, you're going to bed. You know, you're, you're, you, you should not be watching. I was a little young, but if only she'd known about all the serial killer books I was reading at the same time. But uh, this, this, you know, murder and the involvement of the castle, even though the castle wasn't the site Mm-mm. of the murder itself, there have been claims that that Scherer's ghost has, you know, inhabited the place, haunts it, and has brought more people to it looking for her ghost and whatever else they might find there. Some dark tourism right there, like we talked exactly. about a few episodes ago. Exactly. Um, yeah. So after the break, we're going to look at some of the sources and see what, if anything, we can <laughs> learn about where these stories might have come from and how they developed. Next time, Monster Potpourri. Aaron, what do you think that smells like? Uh, Not good. No. Not good. You won't be smelling this kind of potpourri, but we are going to have an episode dedicated to just a variety of fun little short sort of monster stories that don't warrant enough to make up a full episode. Cryptids, human-y type monsters. It should be a fun time. There's there's so many cool things that we come across that we're like, oh, we need to do that. And it's like, that would take about 10 minutes. So, yep. you know, <laughs> yep. So we've got a collection of those. And yes. um, and they're gonna gonna be from around the the Great Lakes region. Yes. And it's uh it, it's it's gonna be fun. And we can almost guarantee no children will be brutally murdered during the next episode. <laughs> a little bit lighter. <laughs> You can subscribe to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to rate and review us if you enjoy the show. We really appreciate that. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Links are in the show notes. Great Lakes Lore relies on listener donations rather than advertising. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, there are links in the show notes and at greatlakeslore.com to contribute. And be sure to reach out with your questions and comments on this episode for the next installment of Monday Mail Call. And now it's time for Legend or Lie. 
All right, Aaron, are you ready? <laughs> you got to get a point, man. <laughs> I know. I'm 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 ready as I'll ever be. I'm I'm psyched out. I feel like I'm due to get one right. <laughs> But um, but yeah, uh, lagging behind here. So uh, so hit me, Sam. Let's see if I can do this. All right. There is a cemetery a few miles south of Chicago called Resurrection Cemetery, and it is said to be home to a female ghost. Since the 1930s, there has been a whole slew of stories of young men who are asked to pick up a ghost at night as they're driving, and she gives them an address, and they are unsure about it they follow that to that address and it ends at the cemetery she gets out and disappears as she walks inside okay i just want to clarify just want to make sure i understand they pick up a ghost who says drive me to this place and then she gets out and okay because the the way i heard it at first i was thinking what like an agency calls them up and says you need to go pick up this ghost oh no okay 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 because so okay because because that okay clarifying that gonna go with my gut i'm gonna say real yep resurrection mary (laughs) congratulations yes (laughs) finally finally Mm -hmm. oh Mm -hmm. oh it feels good not to be a loser um (laughs) for once very Uh, excited she said to be and so i left out these details because you know too many details always give it away that's my downfall yeah um, but she is dressed in a some in somewhat. She, sorry, she's dressed somewhat formally in a white party dress, and she's said to have light blonde hair and blue eyes. I'd I'd give her a ride to the cemetery. And and there are other things too. Like some some say things are a little bit different. There are a bunch of different reports. Well, as there always are. Right. Um. I, I think if if this episode and this show in general has a theme, it could be summed up with. There are a bunch of different reports. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's what we so, need to put on our coffee mugs. Yes. Yeah. Um, Great Lakes lore. Reports are, may vary. Uh, reports may vary. Report and, and citation needed. Yes. All right. All right. Now we'll I've, get back to the show. Yeah. I've oh, got sorry. A point. Did, were you going to say something else? No, I was just going to just going to say that I had a point again. Another point. One point. Oh. Yeah. Not a point to make, just a I, That's point what I thought you meant at first. And I in was the like, competition. oh, I'm sorry. Make your point. <laughs> My point is that I I beat you this time. Oh, well, I still have good. two points, though. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to the show. Lori decided to absorb as much as she could about the occult. She started out small, learning about the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. She borrowed playing manuals, which promised to provide her with an arsenal of magical items. But Dungeons & Dragons didn't hold her interest for long. She was much more fascinated by real witches and sorcerers. From Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. So... As we we look at the sources here, it's difficult to find sources, you know, because what you have is there's a legend of people say all these things like that. So usually, and this is a little, I don't know if it's a helpful hint, but it's it's a hint. Back in the early 20th century, there seemed to be this trend. Every county had an official county history written by somebody who was an expert on that county, and it had all kinds of genealogy information. It laid out who the first settlers were, who owned which land, how many acres. They go through all the the land records, and they they correlate this stuff. There's statistics. They're really, really valuable sources of information in a lot of cases. So in the case of Utica, it's in in Clark County, Indiana. I went to the 1909 Baird's History of Clark County. There is no mention of witches. There's no mention of a curse. There's no mention of anything like this. So then I realized, well, you know what? Maybe Baird was covering this up, right? Because, you know, you didn't want to besmirch the townsfolk. So I went to the official history of Utica, Indiana on the town website. No mention of any of that. Not even anything like, some people say there's a sinister history to Utica. You know, not even any sort of like lip service to the fact that people think a legend exists. There's just no 
mention of this legend in these official or semi-official sources. But there are some things we do know that I think we can connect to elements of these stories. We do know that James Noble Wood obtained property in Utica, um, but or what would someday become Utica, not because he had military service and claimed the land from that. He bought it from a former soldier. His name was Captain George. Um, we even know his name. And he had received that land for serving with George Rogers Clark during the War of Independence. I will not go into detail on George Rogers Clark. There will be no stopping me if I get started talking about George Rogers Clark. But people who served with George Rogers Clark received land grants. Captain George's land grant was the land that would become Utica. Wood bought that from him. We know where the land came from. There was no trio of sisters Mm -hmm. involved, as far as we can tell. But there's no question that Native Americans were displaced as a result of these land grants and increasing white settlement in the Northwest Territory. But defrauding Native sisters, we don't see that in contemporary sources. We don't see any mention of a curse. Natives were certainly defrauded, we should say, but yes. not in this way. <laughs> right. And a, a good example of, of that history of, of fraud is uh, Tule Town, where uh, Charles Tule was a, 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 um, a traitor. Tule Town had a rough reputation as a town where white settlers and merchants would rip off natives who then got angry and became belligerent and a lot of the small-scale white and native conflict was centered around these disputes over property, over merchandise, over land around the town founded by the guy whose daughters were supposedly the ripped-off native witches. So I'm wondering if this general situation of whites defrauding natives could have been expanded into a legend about a curse at some point. Yeah, I mean I think that's generally how a lot of of that kind of stuff there's like there's that strange little nugget of truth. There there are some Métis people, there is this town, this guy did buy land which undoubtedly had actually rightfully belonged to well not belonged to because Native Americans' views on land ownership were very different, um, but that that Native Americans lived on. But he specifically did not go there and kick some sisters down the river. So, <laughs> right, and then watch them. Yes, for an hour, set a, and they set a curse on the land. So then we're going to look at some local news sources, and and this largely relates to the Sharer murder because it seems that this is sort of the beginning of widespread knowledge about this legend or sort of any legends associated with this, quote, witch's castle. The Louisville Courier-Journal articles about the murder and the castle's role emphasize the notion of the castle as the site of an occult ritual. But again, as Aaron mentioned, this is not, (laughs) I mean, we don't find this kind of stuff in the history until this murder happens. And then some books um, came out about the murder that perpetuated this legend as well. Largely, this is confusion because of the occult elements that Lori Tackett, you know, was associated with just kind of being lumped in and mixed together. And I'm partially convinced that anytime a group of girls get together and do something people don't like, obviously, this is a really bad thing, but it's just witchcraft is an easy thing to throw at them, right? Even in the 21st (laughs) century. So in the book, Cruel Sacrifice, that we've mentioned a few times by Aphrodite Jones, and I will say her name every single time I say the it's book an awesome title. name. It's a great <laughs> um, name. And this is probably the most popular account of the Sharer murder. If you look the book up, um, if you Google it or something and you see the cover, it definitely, it was written for a popular, very popular audience. This was not like a some kind of academic examination of the murder or something like that. But it relates that Lori 
Tackett believed that there were nine witches who lived in the castle and um, had been controlling the town, and then they were burned in the castle by a mob of townsfolk. And um, apparently, at one point, Tackett said that she had felt the witch's presence there. Jones also explains that, um, just so we know what her sources are, that she relied on police records, trial transcripts, and some 600 pages of sources to write the book. But the book is written not in a way that we can go back and necessarily check those sources. We just have to trust that, you know, she has sort of crafted the narrative because it's written in a very narrative style with with dialogue um, that's not necessarily exact dialogue, but based on, you know, the the sources that she was reading. Um, so there's there's a there's a bit of trust that you have to place in, in, right. in taking the book for um as as a factual source. Right. And and honestly I think most readers aren't going to say, I need to double check this and fill out all the Freedom of Information Act requests to get police records and go back and I'm going to go interview this girl's mother again and see what she has to say to me. So sadly, one of the primary sources of information about this seems to be the internet, which is not ideal, but the internet can be good. I'm not I don't hate the internet, but the most comprehensive summary of the Witch's Castle saga on the internet that we could find was on a blog called The Accidental Spook from 2012. And it is a luridly written, I would say overly written account that blends the story of the Metis curse and the later cannibalistic witches into one story. It describes the 1950s fire that destroyed Mistletoe Falls, the home there, as unexplained since it clearly wasn't since we know the name of the person who committed the arson the author denies sort of to their credit that shanda Sherer haunts the place because she wasn't killed there but uh, the author manages to weave Sherer into an odd sort of summary of what people may experience there or be experiencing there the author says quote despite the brutality of her murder she seems at rest Yet the emotional imprint of what happened that terrible night remains. Witches, curses, and ghosts aside, maybe the greatest haunt at the witch's castle is sensing the unimaginable horror and suffering of a 12-year-old child at the hand of her supposed new friends, end quote. And, And it's all sort of written in that same overwrought style. Now, what's interesting to me is that there's about a dozen comments on this blog post several of which ask what the author's sources are. (laughs) There are no replies. And these aren't like accusatory questions. What's your source on this? It's, hey, what's your source? This sounds interesting. I want to read more. Um, But no reply. But there was one comment that I loved because it was from somebody from the area who was genuinely attempting to demystify things. Mm -hmm. This, uh, This commenter said, that she grew up about a quarter mile away and quote, it wasn't so mysterious. Her grandfather, her father, her uncle had helped to build it. There was a nice man there that was a preacher. He lived there. The top room was used for a Bible study. Her parents used to hang out there. It burned due to a robbery gone wrong. Teenagers used to go there after it burned. They drank and partied. And that's where a lot of the so-called devil symbols came from that people reported it was just teen graffiti this commenter's parents say that no witches ever lived there and that it was a beautiful place before it burned down so you've got outsiders saying oh this happened and that happened and and the spirits and the feelings and somebody was like nah my grandpa built it and my parents used to go there yeah no it's fine it was just a house (laughs) it burned down yeah so then there are some later news articles The Madison, Indiana High School newspaper website had an article from 2017, which (laughs) literally muddles up like every possible story. They wrote, during the early 1780s, three sisters lived together. These were not your ordinary sisters as all three were witches. And I'm just imagining Hocus Pocus. It doesn't say that, but that's what's in my mind. I'm just imagining my writing skill when I wrote for my high school newspaper. And I'm like, I would write like this, I'm sure. Yes, me too. Absolutely. (laughs) They were not ordinary sisters. They were witches. Um, Then, during the cold winter nights, parents started losing children. It seemed no one was safe. 
So the parents went and drug all three witches out of their house, tied them to a raft, sending them down the Ohio River while also burning the home they took from them. The townspeople were supposedly hexed, but no proof came from it. Also, the site of the infamous murder of teen Shanda Scherer in early 1992 was here. No, it wasn't. (laughs) No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's wrong about this. Everything. Um, Yes. But since, as we know, there were no great sources, I mean, these kids were doing the best they could. <laughs> they did. And, and they, they took a field trip, which, which I think you and I love the idea of taking these field yeah. trips to these spooky places. And um, reporter Kane Nutley, after visiting, said, quote, it was actually a spooky place to go, especially with the backstory with the witches and the crime story, too. End quote. <laughs> it would be. Yes. Yes, it would. (laughs) So in 2017, there was a story in the Jeffersonville, Indiana News and Tribune. And this story recounts two conflicting histories of the witch's castle and summarizes the legend in maybe yet another way, uh, saying, quote, legend says that a coven of witches used to live in the crumbling stone structure hidden in the trees of Utica's riverside. The other bucolic residents didn't like the women, and they burned down their home, earning the eternal ire of the sorceresses and giving their former home the infamous Witch's Castle moniker. A whole coven. We've we've grew from from three in, in two different two different times of three to nine to a coven. <laughs> I don't know how many I don't know how many witches you need to make a coven. I guess maybe three dozen. I don't know. I was just going to ask, you know, is is there a, a number that makes up a coven? In my mind, it's more organized. It's not just like a, a bunch of, you know, witchy folks gathering to dabble in herbs and oh, yeah. whatever it I, is they're up to. But it's like, you know, they've got rules. They have membership dues or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. A coven is sort of an, an organizational sorts of things. Yes. But, you know, I love this. It used to live in the crumbling stone structure. So was it crumbling when they lived there? Right. It was always crumbling. It was built crumbling. The article talks to two women. Uh, Jenny Stewart, who is a paranormal investigator, believes the site is haunted. Quote, the site of a shocking mass murder. Stewart claims to receive messages from the dead and once cited a woman in old-fashioned clothing. And I will just say, watching all of the ghost shows that I do, every time someone says old-fashioned clothing or old-timey clothing or an old-timey hat it just drives me insane it's the worst (laughs) it's like are we talking 1920s were they flappers is she a civil war nurse what's going on here (laughs) yeah it's old-timey clothing so we're you know bell bottoms and sort of leather fringe jacket right you know old-timey i can't wait until we get to a point where like those are the types of ghosts that are on the ghost shows it was like this person had bell bottoms, a giant afro, and a leather fringe belt. Did this ancient hippie haunt this site? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I want that. I, I, I <laughs> do too. That'd be fun. <laughs> no one else she was with saw this woman, conveniently. Stuart did some <laughs> research and found a man who related a story. The man told Stuart that a young boy and his parents had lived there. One night, a robber killed the boy's parents. Later, after he was an adult, the boy abducted seven members of the robber's family and he hanged them all in the trees of Mistletoe Falls, then shot himself. Stuart believes that the seven souls haunt the witch's castle. The boy, boy, meanwhile, has become a shadow person. I guess that's how shadow people are created. I guess. I guess. We all wondered. (laughs) Um, There are no names. There are no dates. This story is completely out of left field related to nothing (laughs) that we have have read about it. It's just the story that an old man told Jenny Stewart. The other woman in this article is a woman that we've met before, Darlene Roach, who, uh, along with her husband, bought the property in 1985. She was the one who owned it during the Scherer murders. And she claims that the man who built the Mistletoe Falls house bought the property because it was connected to the legend of Prince Madoc. And Roach believes that might be the case as well. Roach was the owner of the property during the Sharer murder and was outraged about the trespassing and the supernatural rumor mongering that followed the murder. And in the article, she made a really good point, which is basically that where the murder actually took place in Madison, there's nothing there. 
It's <laughs> just a field. There's nowhere to like go. There's nothing sensational about it. So they picked the most sensational mm-hmm. place associated with it, which happened to be her property. Mm-hmm. And like you said earlier, Sam, you not only have you know looky loos and dark tourists showing up, you've got news crews mm-hmm. showing up without permission as well. So we're going to take a brief moment to talk about Prince Maddock. Aaron just mentioned him, and we haven't discussed this yet. So it's a, it could be if we wanted to get into a very long, winding, twisty story. But I'm just going to give you some nuts and bolts because really that's all you need to commit to memory if you commit any of this to memory at all. So there is a legend that a Welsh prince named Maddock arrived in North America long before Columbus. So before 1492, we all remember the song, right? (laughs) Um, Actually, he arrived somewhere around um, 1170. A um, Welsh historian noted in 1584 that Maddox's father passed away and the sons all began jockeying for land and Maddox wanted nothing of it. So he just peaced out and said he was going to find some new land someplace. And he reportedly arrived in a very strange land and left some of his crew there to settle before leaving to gather more men and return. And so over time, this tale has been twisted to become... Well, obviously, he arrived in the Americas. Like, that's the only thing that made sense to them. And this, of course, caused rumors to spread about um, Native Americans who could speak Welsh or some English. As the English colonists arrived in Virginia and they started spreading out, these stories continued to grow, that there were these, quote, Welsh Indians who were running around um, sort of in the Western lands, um, the old Northwest Territory, if you will. <laughs> um, and and so people started looking for, for these folks. They would set out on treks to try to find them. And in his instructions to Lewis and Clark, Thomas Jefferson actually noted one such individual who had, had done a lot of work trying to find them. Now, Jefferson did not say he believed that this was true or did not believe it or whatever, but it's just literally a a one sentence line about this person. And oh, yes, he was out there looking for the Welsh Indians. Okay. (laughs) Um, And so this connects to the witch's castle because some legends about the falls area say that Maddox came and he made it up the Mississippi to the Ohio River and built stone fortifications. So this witch's castle then is perhaps part of that. Though we know from from the digging we were able to do that this place was built in, you know, the 1940s, was it? So <laughs> not part of Maddox's lost colony. Right. And there, there's also sort of a rival belief that some of these fortresses or some of the, the structures that people found were Shawnee fortresses and, uh, yes, and Shawnee yep. constructions as well. And the uh, that 1909 history of Clark County has a whole chapter. The first chapter in this history is about the Welsh legend or tradition, they call it, the tradition of the Welsh settling the area. And all the information is like, I talked to a man at the Filson Club in Louisville who told me that his great uncle knew a guy who also talked to an old man who was a trader and met an Indian who spoke a little Welsh. It, it, it's all very much stuff like that. There are There are other sort of weird... Europeans in the Americas at the wrong time stories that are much more tightly connected to the Great Lakes that we will probably address uh, at some point in the future. But we just wanted to sort of throw Maddock in here because it was mentioned in that story and it just adds another bit of weirdness and narrative to this very strange, very strange story. Of course, Roach had a reason for wanting people to not think that it was some like haunted occult satanic witch site or something. So so she had her own motive there. But I enjoy that she was at least trying to like steer the conversation in a, in a different way. And doing so from, you know, I mean, she had heard this or, you know, come across it at some point. And she's like, no, no, like that's all crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, this yeah. is this is a story that I've heard. So like, let's do this. Like, shut up about the occult stuff. <laughs> so I think to her credit, she was trying to to do something, but she just had some pieces that weren't <laughs> that yeah. weren't quite correct either. 
And and by by that point in 2017, she had, as we know, long ago sold the property. Yeah. Uh, some property management company owned it at that point and gave permission for the ghost hunters to go there. Um, but on all the message boards I've seen, everybody said, "Don't go there. It's private property. Be respectful." Mm. One person said, "I didn't I didn't grab the exact quote, but." The police in Utica seem to just be civilians who grab whatever weapons they can and go on patrol, which is absolutely not true. Utica has an actual police force. You can go to their Facebook page and look at their cars and their equipment. (laughs) Like with our dogman encounter, internet message boards, not the best place to get the most reliable information. No, not at all. All right. So now it is time to attempt to wrap this up maybe at least shove it into a suitcase that won't explode uh, maybe that's the way that we can <laughs> it's probably the best way best way to do this because this this story seems like a a nexus point for for disinformation misinformation misinterpretation confusion mm-hmm. urban legends run amok stories whose sources seem to be according to legend and that's mm-hmm. as much mm-hmm. as you get it's right up there with Once Upon a Time. <laughs> Once Upon a Time. This is this is a, a this is like a grim fairy tale that got out of control in some yeah. in some ways. And there's a lot going on here, isn't there? Yeah, I mean from from murders to two different witch tales and increasing numbers <laughs> of witches. Um, they multiply. And and then the one random story about the the guy whose parents were murdered and then he turns into a murder and turns into a shadow person or something. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I did not find that one in the newspapers. I will look again, but seven people hanging in the woods. Yeah. It, it's going to be a headline. Yeah. You know, it really is. I mean, not not to mention just this random bringing in of, of a Welsh prince, right? <laughs> it just in my mind, there's some similarities to the Dudgeon Swamp stories that we talked about in our first episode, a place where actual bad things happen. But supernatural stuff gets brought in 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 kind of a baseless way, sourceless ways, or inadequately sourced ways that become uh, that become legends in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I even saw on YouTube there was. I mean, and I'm sure that there are more videos, but I only chose to waste my time with one of them. <laughs> Some <laughs> guy who said he was, you know, gonna look for ghosts or you know whatever the site of the the witch trial, or maybe he was just exploring the ruins. I can't exactly remember at this point. But I mean, he told the stories of both sets of witches, the the Miti and then the cannibal sisters. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and he told them as though they were fact. This happened, and then later this happened, and and then we had the share murder. Like there's no he didn't even qualify it. So I working in public history as I do, we have some different local legends about the, the family whose whose house I I um, interpret and lead tours of. And if I choose to tell that story, because maybe there's a nugget of truth or it enhances something or might help to explain something, I will always say, according to family stories or according yeah. to an oral history or according to the local story that's been passed down, I qualify all of those because, I mean, if you don't, I mean, we have so many people running around thinking that the 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 man and the woman who, who owned the house... Um, that they courted in the the woods between the company he worked at and the school she taught at. No, I don't know. Maybe, but I don't know that. So that's not something that I choose to perpetuate um, because in part, because so many people say it as though it's fact. So I just don't, I just don't even go there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just throw in an allegedly. Yes. It's, I mean, it's multiple syllables, but most of us can, can, you know, stammer that out. (laughs) And not have any problems with it. But mm-hmm. this is the story. And mm-hmm. well, why is this a story? Well, this is what people say. But you don't, after a certain point, you just leave that part off. And it's just like, well, there were these three sisters, you know, and they got ripped off and cursed the town. And then later, three more sisters moved in. They were eating babies. And so they hung them. And then later on, a kid's parents were killed and he hanged seven people. And so is it any surprise that this place is haunted? You right. know, and, and sort of like, you know, You've got these three things, and then the obvious conclusion is a haunting. And yep. a- another thing I, I really liked about this was that it, it highlights just some recurring motifs or sort of cliches almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we could call them that. 
we've got an old Indian curse. I mean, it's the most <laughs> cliched, problematic sort of yeah. story element. Uh, just like uh, the, the, the Shawnee leader Tecumseh with his dying breath cursed future president and former Indiana Territory Governor General <laughs> William Henry Harrison at the Battle of the Thames cursed him with his dying breath. And you didn't really hear about this until decades later when Harrison was, you know, as we all know, the shortest president <laughs> ever who died after 30 days. It was Tecumseh's curse that took Harrison. And it's not in the Great Lakes region, but if you're familiar with Mothman, and Point Pleasant, West Virginia, there is an old Indian curse there. Chief Cornstalk, who's who, who was the leader of the natives who were who were defeated by the English, cursed the land, and so was Mothman part of the curse of Chief Cornstalk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's countless other examples of of you know supposed Native American curses, which simplifies to the point of ridiculousness the Native American belief systems. Um, Mm -hmm. It's sort of curses are primitive, curses are evil. And it posits them back as the bad person as well. Like, regardless of what happened, like... The, the last thing is is the, the evil act of like laying the curse. And it's like, well, n- no. I mean, it, it just oversimplifies so much native European relation. Again, right. belief system and relation, understanding of either one, the whole thing, it just completely muddies up. <laughs> it really does. And we also have, you know, witchcraft in general. And like you were talking about the whole sort of evil little girls thing. Yeah, and there's definitely sort of a connection of like these older witches who are then like luring younger girls into doing something. So like if this place was inhabited by witches and there's some kind of supernatural power there, like clearly that's why, you know, these girls took what they did to the lengths that they did. Because, you know, when they arrived there, there wasn't necessarily an idea that they were going to be committing murder at that point. But right. And so you're able to pawn off, you know, these evil acts as the influence of, you know, malign, demonic, witchcraft, sorcery type things instead of mm-hmm. the the actual sort of horror these girls had dealt with and lived with. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we're not given the tools, you know, to help them to help them cope mm-hmm. with it. And you also have sort of the the motif of, of haunted places and cursed cursed places. Or landscapes that are that are just bad. This idea that that bad things, evil things, horrific things, sort of imprint on the physical landscape feelings that are manifested later by people, which is you know one of the sort of explanations for for hauntings and things like that. But um, just the idea that this place, this is a bad place. Yeah, and there are also like theories that places by water that water somehow helps to like hold like haunted energies <laughs> or something like this and so we have this location that's like right on the river. I just know from from different things that like associations are made with like places near water. So like, you know, whether it's a haunted mill on a river or a lighthouse or, you know, whatever it might be. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. So, Aaron, you did sort of a, a wrap up of all of these various points. Do you want to hear what my theory is? I want to hear what your theory is. I absolutely do. Yes. My theory is that these ruins were a place, as as one person noted, where teens sort of went and partied and whatever. People would try to spook each other out there or something, you know, the local teens in the area. Of course, they needed a name for it. Meet me at the witch's castle, whatever. So that's just some name that's floating around in the 80s, 90s, maybe because of all these satanic stories or whatever, they just start calling it this witch's castle name. These murders happen. And so suddenly these girls are saying, oh, yeah, the witch's castle, the witch's castle. And suddenly all these people are like, hmm, did I did I hear a story about that once? M- maybe I did. And so slowly this starts this myth that never even existed prior to the murders of 1992. I like it. Can I add a little wrinkle that I think goes well with that? Sure. You've got these kids partying at the castle, right? Mm-hmm. In the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. What do kids do when they're hanging out someplace? They're telling stories. They're mm-hmm. making up stories. So to what degree could some of these stories have been 
sort of a witch's castle iteration of other types of campfire stories they might have heard in other contexts or or, or things. There is nothing, like nothing that exists about this place even being referred to as the witch's castle. No, and absolutely not. And I would like to actually, I, I want to throw in a little caveat here. If anybody out there can get sure. us an actual source, <laughs> please do. I, I, I do this on, on The Saucer Life all the time. I, I fully acknowledge. Yeah, if there's a book out there that explains all this, please, you know, just just get me the citation. We can't know everything. Aaron and Sam, you uh, you do not have an original thought in your mind. This book already explained everything that you just said. And that could be the case. Great minds think alike. <laughs> so I think that's a good note to uh, to end on. Yes, I do too. This is a, a strange story with no sources. Nope. And I am confident that if any of our listeners out there have a source, they will let us know. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for listening. The Witch's Castle of Utica, Indiana was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore.